at Matthew chapter 3, so you can go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. These are the words of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, right now I'm just reminded that this these are your very words. And Lord, I'm reminded even in this moment that I need your help to convey what is true about you. But Lord, I pray now, I ask, Lord, that you'd help me by your Spirit to do so. You say in your word, Lord, that in our weakness you are strong. So Lord, would you use a weak man for your glory this morning. Take our weakness and show, we pray, the power of God in our lives. Help us now, we ask. We cannot do this without you. So help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to, we're going to take... Um, the, the title for today's message is, um, give me just a second, is A Trinitarian Focus, Redemption Through the Son. And now, this is a two-part, or actually a three-part series, um, but we're in part two today. Um, and last week, I mentioned uh, we're seeing this picture of Christ being baptized, and I want us to do... Uh, similar to what we have, like I said the other week in, in baseball right now, we have this epidemic of instant replay. You can't watch a game without watching at least four instant replays. And the instant replay is very, very important because sometimes bad calls are made good, and then good calls are actually made bad. We see very quickly that, yeah, people are safe when they're out, they're out when they're safe. And in the same way, I want us to take a minute and I want us to slow down and do instant replay on a very, very, very important element of Jesus' ministry. But the question, the question still remains, why, why slow down? Why take this time for such a complex truth of Scripture? What does it matter if we don't understand it? What does it matter? The, the Heidelberg Catechism, it's a catechism of the church, and I think it's a very helpful one, especially in this question. He, they, they ask the question, since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? He's really asking, this question is really asking the same thing of, why slow down and take another week? And the answer is this, because God has so revealed Himself in His Word. 
that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. We don't need to understand the Trinity in its fullness, but we do at the same time. (laughs) We need to believe it. We don't need to understand it. We don't need to explain it. We shouldn't try to explain the unexplainable. But what we need to do is we need to believe the unexplainable. I want to say that one more time. We shouldn't try to explain the unexplainable, but we certainly need to believe the unexplainable. I love what Herman Bovnik, he, he goes on to say. He says, such a holy respect suits us also as we witness God revealing himself in his word as a triune God. For we must always remember that as we study this fact, what we're dealing with today, we are not dealing with a doctrine about God, with an abstract concept, or with a scientific proposition about the nature of divinity. We are not dealing with human constructions which we ourselves or which others have put upon the facts, which we now try to analyze logically to dismember. Rather, in treating of the Trinity... We are dealing with God Himself, with the one true God who has revealed Himself as such in His Word. So I want to caution us today as we're dealing with the second part of this Trinitarian focus, because we're not dealing with a concept about God, we're dealing with the very nature of God Himself, okay? So I want us to just review real quick, and you'll see it there in your notes. I want us to look there at the the revelation from the Father. Now, this is what we looked at last week. And we looked at three key elements, which were the nature of the relationship of the Father with the Son, the quality of that relationship of Him, my Son, he says, the Beloved, in the bosom of the Father from eternity past, and then the disposition that the Father has toward the Son, which is pleasure and delight. And I love, again, what Bobnick says. He says, it is the Father that we are particularly indebted, therefore, for His electing love, to the Son for His redeeming grace, and to the Spirit for His regenerative and renewing power. So those are the three elements that we're going to cover in the next, even next week. So the revelation from the Father, and today is the redemption through the Son, redemption through the Son, that's the Son's obedience, and then next week we're going to look at the regeneration by the Spirit, okay? So the redemption through the Son. Now, as a way to just bring us into why, why focus, again, on the redemption through the Son? I mean, obviously, this is a simple truth, right? One, one reason why Christianity is different than every other religion on earth is that every other religion has a mediator. Okay, so let me give you a couple of examples. In Islam, Muhammad isn't God, okay? Muhammad is to restore right worship to God. In, in um, Buddhism, Buddha doesn't, isn't God. Buddha gives away to nirvana. Or, or Confucius, he gives wise sayings that bring you to paradise. Every religion has a mediator. The one central different, difference between Christianity and all other religions is that Christ is not the leader of Christianity. Christ is not the sage leading us to something else. Christ is not the true confessor of Christianity. As Bovnik says, he is not, in the unusual sense of it, the founder of Christianity, but he is the Christ, 
the one who was sent by the Father, who founded his kingdom on earth, and now extends and preserves it to the end of the ages. Christ is himself Christianity. I want to say that one more time. Christ is not the mediator between God and us. He is Christianity. He stands not outside of it, but inside of it. He goes on. Without his name, person, and work, there is no such thing as Christianity. In one word, Christ is not the one who points the way to Christianity, but he is the way himself. That is, that is a pinnacally important piece here, and it's the reason why I take another week to focus in on the redemption through the Son. If you're taking notes, um, you'll see at the very top of the page one simple truth. It's this, is that Jesus' baptism reveals the Son's mission. His mission is to redeem us by partaking in our humanity, and He partakes in order to be identified with sinners and represent us before God. I want you to look down, notice, uh, jump down in your Bible there to Matthew 3, 13 through 15. This is what we're going to focus in on today. Then Jesus came, this verse 13, uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So I want you to notice that phrase there that Jesus use, uses. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, represents Jesus' concern for being faithful to the Father's plan. Jesus is truly human, and He's showing Himself to be identified with His people. Again, Bovnik is very helpful. He says, and before He let Himself be baptized by John, He knew that He did not need that baptism for the forgiveness of sins but that he was to have it in order in all things to be obedient to the will of God. That baptism, accordingly, was for Jesus not a break with a sinful past, for this he did not have. Rather, it was on his part a total surrender and dedication to the work that the Father had given him to do. And on God's part, it was a total equipping and fitting out for that work. And there it is. There's the piece of it. So when we see Jesus baptized, we should not see him saying, oh, I'm a sinner. I need, I need forgiveness. He's saying, I am being identified with me and you. When we see Jesus saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, see him saying, this is me identifying with you, sinner. This is me identifying with you, rebel. This is me identifying with you. So what does Jesus' baptism show about his nature? Well, I want us to look at three elements. I want us to look at the nature of Christ, who he is, the work of Christ, what is he doing, and finally, the purpose of Christ. I want us to dial in first on the nature of Christ. So the nature of Christ, who he is. In Jesus' baptism, it shows three things about his nature. It first shows this, that Jesus' baptism, if you're following the notes there, Jesus' baptism shows that He is truly human. Now, we've seen a lot of this from, in 1 John, if you remember back to 1 John, that Jesus was not just a ghost, okay? 
Jesus was not just somebody who hovered around and he, he walked this like ghostly lifestyle. John didn't baptize a ghost. He baptized a real flesh and blood Jesus. And I know for a lot of us, we're like, yeah, duh. No, duh. Of course, Jesus was a real human. This may seem obvious, but it reveals something profound. In that one person, Jesus, we see two wills operating. We see a human will and a a divine will. And this does not make Jesus a schizophrenic, but what it does is it reveals who God is to us. So we see Jesus' baptism. We see he's truly human. The second thing it shows us is that his baptism shows that he is the son of the Father. This is a simple one because we just saw it last week, but I want to just highlight it again. Jump down to verse 17. He says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And I want us to see the third thing, is that Jesus' baptism shows that he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 16, jump down to verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Or as we hear in another gospel, for whom, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, that is, to Christ. And I want us to ask one simple question. I think sometimes we, we look at these, these three truths I just mentioned are so commonplace for us. He's truly human. He's the Son of the Father. He's empowered by the Spirit, and we're like, duh, okay, so what? What does that matter? But there's an important question to ask. How could God do this? How could God say, you are my beloved son? Because all throughout the Old Testament, I want to read three verses just to let you see how throughout the Old Testament, this is such a strange reality. Isaiah 42, 8, just to give you a reference. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved images. Or again, Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Or listen to another place in Isaiah. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So when we see Jesus being baptized, we hear the Father's profession, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, and we see the Spirit descend on Him as a dove. We need to hear that Jesus is either a fraud or He really is the Son of God. He really is the Son of God who's come. Or or take what Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 says. He says, behold, this is God speaking, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice and make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in all the earth." and the coastlands wait for his law. Here's the thing for us. In in all 
the realities we see of Jesus here. Oftentimes I find we speak of the Trinity incorrectly. We'll, we'll oftentimes, and, and, and for good reason, I think we, we try to help our children understand the Trinity, and we'll say things like, well, the Trinity is, is kind of like water. We'll say the Trinity is, is kind of like water. You have different forms. You have the, the, the water turns into liquid, and then the water turns into ice, and then the water turns into steam, but it's still water. Or, or we say, as St. Patrick did, the Trinity is like a clover. If you think about a clover, it has three leaves. And each member represents a petal, and then the stem binds them together. And when we teach these things in this way, we actually teach our children to be little tiny modalists. We don't teach them to be Trinitarians. We teach our children to be modalists with these examples because we try to take something that's unexplainable and make it easy to understand. So, so the liquid, the, the vapor, the ice, they all are three modes of the same thing of the same essence, and it shows that it's, it's, it's not how the Trinity actually is in that sense. So we need to be very careful when we speak of these things, that God has revealed Himself in the person of Christ, and He has sent him, His Son to die for us. So which leads us, to, that's the nature of Christ, it's the question, who is He? Then we get to the work of Christ. What is He doing? The work of Christ what is he doing? And it's this, is that Jesus' baptism shows he is identified with his people. So we see something about the nature of Christ, but we also see something about the work of Christ, and it's specifically this, that Jesus' baptism shows he has identified with his people. Now notice what he says again in verse 15, jump down there. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When we say that Christ is identified with His people, we mean that He is identifying with their humanity. Whereas Hebrews says, jump down, to, or it should be actually up on the page, Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, this is referring to Christ's incarnation or His becoming like us, being born of a virgin, being born, but it also shows that He's His baptism here. He partook of the same things. The partaking of the same things means that He partook in flesh and blood and all of the things that were a part of the flesh and blood except for sin. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about it for a second. What is something in your life, or maybe in your, as you were younger, that embarrasses you? Think for a minute with me, if you would. Think of something that embarrasses you. What is it? I remember when I was a child, or young, maybe not a child, but when I was younger, uh, I used to, there came a point where I used to be really, really embarrassed by my parents. My parents would come around and just... I don't, I don't know what, like it wasn't even that they did anything necessarily. I think there's just a period of time when you're a child that you just get embarrassed by your parents. I don't know why that is. But I was very, very embarrassed. Every time they, they'd be around, I'd be like, oh, my God, there they are. <laughs> I don't know. You could think of other things that we get embarrassed by. Maybe it's the crazy uncle. I have an, I have an uncle in my family, uh, one that I always warn people when they meet him. I'm like, when, if he says something to you, like just, just ignore it. Just ignore what he says to you. And I, just, I say that to say that we get embarrassed by many, many things. 
And we could look and say, well, we get embarrassed when our spouse, yeah, you know, when our husband, he tells those corny jokes. I just get so embarrassed. Where he just sticks his foot in his mouth so often, it's so embarrassing. And we could name off thing after thing after thing after thing after thing. And I think sometimes we, we get so easily embarrassed that we immediately think that Jesus is embarrassed of us. We immediately think, well, Jesus, he must be having the same disposition toward me that I have toward, him, toward others. And I think what I want us to see here as we see that he's identified with his people is that Jesus is not embarrassed of his people. And I want you to just think about all the things that you've seen happen even in the church, in other churches, uh, as the church as a whole. She could be very easily described as embarrassing. But you need to realize that Jesus is not embarrassed by you. He's not embarrassed by your sin. He says that then later, in, or earlier in Hebrews 2, 10 through 13, he says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So when we see Jesus coming to John the Baptist and saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling, for, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, you need to hear him saying, I am not embarrassed to be their Savior. I'm not embarrassed of them to, when they come to me. He's not embarrassed of us in that sense. So Jesus' baptism shows he is identified with his people. I want you to see the second thing about the work of Christ, though is that Jesus' baptism shows he stands as our covenant representative. Now, that's some complicated, that's a $3 phrase there, a covenant representative. And it's worth unpacking. So what do I mean by covenant representative? It's that simply, simply it's this. It's that in Adam, we have all died. But in Christ, we are all made alive. Okay, that's what, what it is simply. Go back to the Garden of Eden with me for a second. You go back to, gar- to the Garden of Eden where Eve was initially tempted by the serpent. She was lured by the, by the serpent to disobey God. But her husband was right there with her in complete compliance with the whole situation. This has been called the abdication of Christ, or, or, or the abdication of Adam. Abdication is simply the giving over our rights to take dominion in the garden. He relinquished the command the Lord had given him in creation. So Adam, being the first Adam in that sense, was the one who in the garden, when he saw his wife walking in disobedience and rebellion, he not only, he not only just sat by and watched, he participated. Now, brothers, men... We, fa- we have fallen prey to this if we have ever allowed something to go on in our homes that we knew was wrong or harmful for our family and just let it go on because it was easier. And so we know, I, I, before I, we jump all over Adam and say, well, Adam, what a terrible guy. We're not anything like Adam. I want us to see, brothers that, and sisters, that we're much like Adam in that sense. And we know how the story goes. Adam does not obey God. He gives over his authority to his wife and is deceived by the serpent. Have you ever seen um, 
I'll get there in a second. Romans, I'll show you in another place where we see this. Romans 5, 12 through 14, he says this. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And you may protest and say, well, that's not fair. I don't like that. I don't like that Adam was my representative. And I'd want to say to you, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care, and that's too bad. We do this all the time. We have representatives at, at... We elect them at the state level, we elect them at the governor level, we elect them at the president level, and people that that say, well, well, Biden, he's not my president, I want to be like, too bad. He's your representative for the United States. We elect governors and rulers to act as our representative for our state, and what what Paul's point here in Romans was is that Adam acted as our representative in the garden. This is exactly what happened in Adam. All have sinned because all inherited Adam's guilt. But before I go on, I, wanna, I want us to think about something. So we know this story very well. We know Adam sinned. He abdicated or he gave over his authority. But what would it have looked like for Adam to make the right decision in the garden? Take, go back to the garden. There's his wife with the fruit. She eats the fruit. What, what would have been the right decision for him in that moment? What should he have done? What, did, what Adam did in the garden was, a fool, was foolish. And it's seen in plays like Romeo and Juliet. If you're not familiar, Romeo and Juliet is a play by Shakespeare. And in that play, Juliet fakes her death to, so that she can avoid an arranged marriage. But Romeo sees it and he says, oh my, my wife's dead. So he kills himself. It's essentially what Adam did in the garden. Adam saw, there's my wife, she eats of the fruit. Rather than saying, hey, I'll stand up. I know this is wrong. I should do something. He says, can I have a bite? You're dead. I mean, you're, you, just, you, just, you just sunk us. So rather than being a helpful representative, I'm going to actually, just give me a bite. Come on. What would have obedience look like in that moment though? And I think we can say from Scripture very clearly that Adam's obedience would have been in that moment to, to number one, kill the serpent. That's the first thing. And then second, to bring his bride to God and said, you know what? She's under a death sentence. Give it to me. I'll take it in her place. I will die in her place. Take me as a substitute for her death. So how can I confidently say that? Well, Romans 5, 5.12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Then he goes on, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespasses brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace 
and the free gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus' baptism reveals that he is coming in as our new covenant representative. He is coming, he is bringing the new covenant, and he stands as our covenant representative. Where Adam fell, he is going to be the one who stands. And in the same way that Adam once stood as our prior representative, Christ will stand as his new covenant head. Jesus' baptism reveals the Son's mission, and his mission is to redeem us by partaking in our humanity. He he partakes in it in order to be identified with sinners and represent us before God. Let me give you the next one, just to begin to land the plane. I want us to look at the purpose of Christ, why he is baptized, why is he baptized. As for what purpose is, ba- is Christ baptized? That's what I want us to look at. I want you to notice the first purpose is this, is that Jesus' baptism shows that he is the faithful high priest that we need. So he's going to stand as our covenant representative, but he's going to do so as a, as a high priest. He's going to do so as a high priest over the household of God. Now, in the Old Testament, if you're familiar, the, the, the high priest was the person who would enter in before the Holy of Holies every year. He would be the, pe- the person who would go and represent the people every year before God. Now, there's some very particular things about the high priest. The high priest couldn't be a Gentile. The high priest couldn't, couldn't be someone outside of the people of Israel. He needed to be a representative from the tribe of Levi. He needed to share in flesh and blood of the people of God. Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, he says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And that's the high priest of the Old Covenant. They they were ones who knew and understood the weaknesses of the people because they themselves were weak. But there was one particular day in the life of the high priest that was so utterly important. And it was the day called the Day of Atonement. It It was the great day in the life of the high priest because it was the day the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he would kill a goat on behalf of the people. And as we're told in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, these high priests of the past were a shadow of the true priest, high priest, which is why we see Jesus going under the water. He is identified with us. He stands as our representative for this purpose, that he be a faithful high priest. This may not seem significant to you, but I hope you can see that it is in the sense that the, right, that the authors of Scripture think it is. Notice what he says in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, like we just saw, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And he goes on and he says, therefore... 
verse, verse 16 or 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know what this means for me and you? It means that we have a Savior who understands our temptation. We have a Savior who understands what it's like, or understands what it's like to be fully human and yet without sin. So it means this for us. Men, when we find ourselves tempted to lust, we have a faithful high priest that we can run to and cling to and, and ask for help. Or women, when, we are tempted, when you're tempted to compare yourself to another, you can take your temptations and you can run to the foot of our Savior. Or children, when you're tempted to be disobedient to parents, you can run to your Savior, who is your faithful high priest. In all the temptations that we find ourselves in, we have a Savior who suffered for sinners. We have a Savior who is able to help us in our temptations. Or as Paul says in another place, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I want you to see the last piece is that Jesus' baptism shows he is the true priest-king. He is the true priest-king. Now, just remember what's happening here. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist, being raised up, and when he's lifted out of the water, he ascends into heaven, and whoever sees it, whether it's Jesus, whether it's John the Baptist and Christ, they see that Jesus was baptized, and immediately he went up into the water, went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Jesus' baptism shows he's the true high priest. He is the true priest king. Hebrews 5, he says in another place, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Does that sound familiar? Familiar language there as we see in Matthew, Matthew 3? Or as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he's quoting there from Psalm, Psalm 110. Now Melchizedek, real quick, Melchizedek was a figure in the Old Testament who we are told we know very, very little about. Other than we know he was a priest of God Most High. And in Genesis, we don't know, it doesn't say, there's no genealogy linking Melchizedek to the people of God. So in, this, in some mysterious way, Melchizedek stands as this guy who is eternal in that sense. Because <laughs> we don't know when he came and when he died. But what we see picked up in the New Testament is as Hebrews 7 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, and he's referring to Christ, because he continues forever. 
So what he's pointing to there is he's pointing to the fact that Christ's priesthood is forever because Christ has been raised from the dead, and he continues forever. As he says in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession is very, very important for us because intercession is like the constantly hitting refresh of our justification. That right now in heaven, there stands one who is, have you ever hit like the refresh page on a, on a web browser and it refreshes the browser over and over and over and over again? That's what Christ is doing right now for our justification. In the presence of God, he is hitting the refresh of our justification in that sense. As Dane Ortland says, he says, the divine son never ceases to bring his atoning life, death, and resurrection before his father in a moment-by-moment way. Or as Calvin said, he said, Christ turns the father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. This means for me and you that in every moment, in our worst moments, that we have someone who stands and intercedes before the Father on our behalf. And he goes on to say, Hebrews 7, He says, 26 and 27, he says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Brothers and sisters, this means for me and you that we have one who's, who stands in the heavens and intercedes on our behalf. I love what Dane Ortland then says. He says, our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. Brothers and sisters, this is true of us today. So I want us to turn now, and I want us to take communion. Um, if you, yeah, Tony, 